Let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll get into Acts 13 together. Pray with me. Father, thank you that we can come together in your name. And Lord, we come to you as a people that want to worship you. God, regardless of all the, the comforts of this world, modern comforts, God, and modern technology, regardless of all of that, God, we want to be a people that worship you in spirit and truth. We love you, Lord. All around this room, God, it could go up, and you know it, God. You know, you know the depths of our hearts, but we love you, and we love your word. And we want to worship you in your word this morning. So, God, as we open it and read it, please, God, speak to our hearts. Open our eyes to see. Help us to see wondrous things here. God, build us up as a church. We're your church. We proclaim that, God, that we, we, we belong to you. By way of creation, Lord, you created us. We exist because of you, God. Our every breath, Lord, is from you. But not even just creation, God, but because you purchased us. We, you, you own us, God, because you bought us with your own blood. God, thank you that your sons and daughters are scattered all across this room. Your sons, your daughters, for the glory of your name. And so, God, we belong to you. We're not our own. We belong to Christ. And so, Lord, we want to worship you today. And I just ask that for this church, God, that you would build us up, that you would make us a people in the image of Christ. Make us a people, God, to behold your glory. And from one degree of glory to the next, Lord, we become more and more like you. Use your word to do that this morning. God, we want to be a people that go out into the world as light in the darkness. We want to penetrate the darkness with the light of your gospel. God, help us to do it. Fill us with boldness to do it. Fill us with an urgency, God. God, please take indifference, God, and just, and just push it away from us, God. Cut it off from us. Well, we hate the thought of being indifferent, this sin of being indifferent, God, to, to the things that concern you. You told us to go in all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You told us to go make disciples of all the nations. And Lord, we want to obey you. God, we say alongside those Moravians, Lord, may the Lamb receive the reward of His suffering. Lord Jesus, You suffered and died. In mercy and grace, You laid down Your life. So that we could have salvation and you purchased, you have purchased a bride for yourself from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And God, we just want to exalt that and we want to be a part of taking it to the ends of the earth. Lord, help us as a church. God, we sing with the, with that eternal choir, Lord, that you give us a vision of in Revelation. We sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and glory and honor. Worthy are you, O oh Lord. You are so worthy. God, I pray that you would build us up in unity. That you would unite us around the things that matter the most. God, we don't want to be united in worldly things. God, we want to be united in affections for you. We want to be united in worship of you. We want to be united in the mission that you've called us to. United in forbearance and forgiveness and mercy and love. We want to be united in these things. 
God, please grant that to us in, in deeper ways. Lord, this text of Scripture is it's beautiful. It's amazing. Lord, I pray that you would please protect us from human lips and human ears messing it up. But rather, God, let me preach your word and the ability that you supply. And I pray, God, that your people would hear your word with an ability that you supply. Thank you so much, Lord, for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, turn to Acts 13. As Dustin said earlier, we've been coming through the book of Acts together. Acts 13. Have you ever heard a missionary story that brought joy to your soul? Or have you ever uh, been talking to a friend and heard of kind of a, an evangelistic encounter that they had, a conversation they had, and you just hear about it, and it brings joy to your soul? I know a lot of you here have read David Brainerd and his missions to the American Indians. I know you've read, a lot of you have read that, and, and, you, and you read it, and it encouraged your soul. It brought joy to you to think about what God did through that man. Or some of you may have read Hudson Taylor. The missionary stories that are found there is he took the gospel to China. So do you remember that? So, so here's a question. How did the gospel get to Pisidian Antioch? This people group there in modern day Turkey. How did the gospel get there? How did the church get planted in Antioch in Pisidia? And that's what we find out in Acts 13, verse 13 through 52. We found out how the gospel got there and how the church was established there. So let's start off. We're going to read this in sections. I want to start off reading about the open door in verses 13 through 16. This is how the door was opened for the gospel in Pisidian Antioch. Let's read it together. Verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. There it is, Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the, after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. So how did they get to Pisidian Antioch? So you remember, they go on this first missionary journey, and the first place they land is an island called Cyprus in the middle of the Mediterranean. They land on this island, and then it says, they, after they preach the gospel there, they set sail from this island, and they land in what is modern-day Turkey. At the very beginning, they land in Perga. They take about a 100-mile journey to Pisidian Antioch, which is where this is set. They land in Pisidian Antioch. Now, who's a part of this team? If you remember, they started off as, as Paul and Barnabas and John Mark. 
They were a triple threat with the gospel. This is how they started off. You got two church planters and an assistant. And then after that, it says in this verse we just read that John Mark abandoned the mission, that he left the mission. And that's, we'll talk more about that later when you get into about Acts 15, because that John Mark leaving the group there is going to, it's going to cause a stink later. It's going to cause a problem. Now, so how does the door get open to the gospel here? So they land in Pisidia and Antioch, and there's a large population of Jews in this place. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know from what we just read, there's a synagogue in this place. That synagogue has plural rulers. It says the rulers, plural, of the synagogue. We know from the historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, that there was about 2,000 Jewish families scattered throughout this region. So there was a large population of Jews there. So what did they do? So Paul and Barnabas, the two-man team now, they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. They go to the synagogue meeting on the Sabbath day. <clears throat> and it says that when they land there, that the men actually invite them. They say, hey, if you have any word of exhortation, you can stand up and share that now. And so, of course, Paul says, absolutely. I would love to share something. So he stands up and the door is open to preach the gospel. And I want you to see something about the beautiful merging of two things right here. Human responsibility and divine sovereignty. And you see a beautiful merging of that here, okay? So Paul and Barnabas here, they take on their responsibility to make disciples of all the nations. They take on their responsibility to what God called them to. How? They go to Pisidian Antioch and they land themselves in the synagogue. Why? Why'd they go to the synagogue meeting? Are they going back to Judaism? And I think you say, well, absolutely not. They're not going back to Judaism. What are they doing? Well, this is, a, this is a great natural fishing hole for fishers of men. And so they, they show up there and they just sit down. They intentionally place themselves in a place where they can preach this gospel. That's human responsibility to the mission, which we should all think about. But then it says God opens this door. The very men that later on are going to hate them and going to kick them out of the city are the men that look at them and they say, hey, if you got any word to say to everybody, stand up. You got, you got the floor. They pass the mic to them. So this is an open door from God. So I love this beautiful merging. We see it in our own lives as we purposefully, intentionally set ourselves in the paths of people so that we can share the gospel. That's why we do that. And then God opens the door to share that gospel into people's hearts. It's the open door to the gospel in Pisidian Antioch. Now, so the door's open. Paul's about to preach this gospel. He's about to preach the message. And we get his message in verses 17 through verse 41. We're about to read that. We get the message that he speaks. Now, this is important. If you, if you study the book of Acts, there's several places where you have the messages of the gospel being preached. So we get what, what Peter preached right here and what Peter, uh, Peter preached right here in this other place or what Paul preached right here. Acts 7, here's what Stephen preached. And we get these little, these little summaries of what they preach. Now, it would be a good thing for all of us to make sure we study those, those things. What was being preached by the church in the book of Acts? And go study those, okay? Now, this is the message that brings unreached people groups into the kingdom of God. This is that message that saves lost souls. And Peter, excuse me, Paul stands up at this open door and here's what he preaches. Now, lean in. This is a, this is a large section of Scripture. Lean in and listen to what he says, beginning of verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, 
chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Now to this point, remember, he's speaking to the Jews and he begins in Genesis and walks through some Jewish, uh, the history of Israel here. That's what we've just seen. Keep going. Verse 23 of this man's offspring of David's offspring. God has brought to Israel a savior. Jesus. As he promised, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God, that, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is free from everything from which you could not be free by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I'm doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. So here's the message that he proclaimed. So the doors open in the synagogue in Pisidia and Antioch, and Paul heralds that message. And let's talk quickly, just seven quick points about that message. Number one, 
it was a simple message. And I want to encourage you to think about the simplicity, even rejoice in the simplicity of this message. Now, it's deep. It can go very, very deep. And yet, at the same time, what I've just read to you, what Paul preached, is so simple that even a child could understand it. That a child could believe it and be saved. That a young child could even proclaim it. Rejoice in the simplicity of this message. Grace Community Church, do we still believe in the power of the simple message of the gospel? Or have we become too mature for that? Second point. It was a biblical message. And what I mean is his message came out of the Bible. It originated in the Bible. Okay, I want to sh show you that. Notice how much scripture is either referred to or, or, or directly quoted in this message. Start in verse 17. I just want to help you make this connection that the whole Old Testament is in view. Look at verse 17 again. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. That's Genesis. He chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's Genesis, first book of the Bible. And made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. That's Exodus, second book of the Bible. Verse 18. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. That's the first five books of the Bible. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. As he puts up with them for 40 years in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. That's the next book of the Bible, Joshua. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges. That's the book of Judges coming up next. Until Samuel the prophet, the prophet, first and second Samuel. Then they ask for a king, and it starts to tell you about Saul, and how after Saul came David, and we're getting into first and second kings. Do you see that he's laying this all out? This is a scriptural message. And he goes on in verse 33 to quote Psalm 2. In verse 34, he quotes Isaiah 55. In verse 36, he quotes, excuse me, verse 35, he quotes Psalm 16, and he closes it all out at the very end by quoting Habakkuk. This is a biblical message. So what do we take away from that? Saints of God, use the Bible. Use the Bible to depend on your own thoughts and your own words. It's like taking firecrackers into the war. You've got the grenades of God's word. And that's what we see here. It's a biblical message. Number three, this was a message all about Jesus. Look at verse 23. If we keep reading where I stopped. Verse 23 of this man's offspring, talking about David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. He says all that from Genesis on was about Jesus. And every verse he quotes here is about Jesus. Every explanation he gives is about Jesus. Jesus, 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 from beginning to end of his message is saturated with Christ. This is a message about Jesus. So let's say, let's say someone's wife so, some one of the mans uh, in Pisidian Antioch, one of the wives weren't able to make it to the synagogue meeting that day. They couldn't make it to the synagogue meeting. And so the husband comes home and the wife says, well, tell me, what was it all about? What was the preaching about? And the man looks at his wife and he says, it was all about this man, Jesus. Paul stood up, this man named Paul stood up and he just told us how the whole Torah pointed to Jesus, how the Psalms pointed to Jesus, how the prophets point to Jesus. And get this, he died, but he's still alive. 
This is a message about Christ is what she would have heard that day. Christless messages save no one. Are you convinced of that? Christless messages save nobody. If there's no Jesus in your message, nobody's getting saved. If, you, if there's no Christ in your message, you might as well be, be uh, reading a cookbook to them or just read the newspaper to them because it's not the good news of Christ if Jesus isn't in the message. So what do we do? Don't, don't preach the message with no Christ. It's not the gospel. Don't preach a message with just a little Christ, but let it be saturated in Jesus, just like this message that we're reading about here. Number four, it's a message about the Old Testament fulfilling death of Jesus. Now we see that in verse 27 through 29, we see him talking about the death of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's the Old Testament fulfilling of the death of of Jesus Christ. It talks about here, uh, Paul talks about how he was executed, how he was condemned, how he was hung on a cross, and how he was buried. That's what he mentioned right here in these verses. Now, but here's the thing. He does not present it as just a common death. This is no ordinary death. It's not like the, the, the two thieves that died beside him. It's not like that kind of death. This is an Old Testament fulfilling death. Look at verse 27. Hear what I just said in verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him. So he says the Messiah came and the rulers of Judaism didn't recognize him. Nor did they understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They, the, the utterances of the Old Testament were read every Sabbath. He said they didn't get it. They did not get it. And those, those prophecies, it says, they fulfilled them by condemning him. They fulfilled the Old Testament by condemning Jesus. Do you realize what that means? Jesus' death was not a common death, and it's not being presented here as just some ordinary death. It's the death that fulfilled things like Isaiah 53. Not just any death, but he was wounded for something. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was more than a martyr. He was more than a man that just gave himself for a good cause. He was a man that died as a substitute for your sins. He was wounded for our transgressions. It was the will of the Lord, Isaiah 53 says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he becomes the offering for our sin. He was crushed under God's wrath in our place. That's what his death is about. His death was an Old Testament fulfilling death. And that's what he's preaching here. Now the death of Jesus... The death of Jesus and all that it means, it is the very, it should be, it is and it should be at the very center of your gospel. In fact, there's one place in the scripture that refers to the gospel as the message of the cross. The message of the cross. It's at the center of the gospel. Number five, it's a message about the Christ affirming resurrection of Jesus. Now, we read that in verse 30 through 37. When he begins to lay out the resurrection of of Jesus. And the idea is, is he says God, that Christ, after he died, he didn't stay dead, but he rose from the dead. And this is Christ affirming because not only did he rise from the dead, but he's seen by eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness. That's what he lays out here. And the idea is that we saw him with our own eyes. He's risen from the dead, which means it affirms that he is everything that he claimed to be. 
Everything that He came to be, He came to be God Almighty. He came to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. He is all those things. How do you know? He rose from the dead. He's been seen by eyewitnesses. They saw Him. He's risen from the grave. And so I think one thing to take away from that is that Christians do not, excuse me, Christians preach that Christ has died, but we do not preach a dead Christ. We preach that Christ has died, but we do not preach a dead Christ. We preach a living Christ, a risen Christ, a Christ that's tearing down idols in people's hearts, a Christ that will one day judge the living and the dead. That's the Jesus that we proclaim. That's the Jesus that Paul proclaims to Pisidian Antioch. Number six, it was a message about forgiveness and justification and salvation. And here's what I want you to see. It's not just cold facts about Jesus. Here's who he was. This is what he did. But how does that connect with every single individual in Pisidia at Antioch? How does it connect with you and me? The fact that he died, not just cold facts, but how does this relate to us? And this was a message about forgiveness and justification in salvation. Let me show you forgiveness. Verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. The forgiveness of sins. And it drives our mind to think about our sin record before God. You know, you've heard of a criminal record here on earth, right? Somebody might, you know, many of you might have a criminal record. You got this criminal record on earth. Will you imagine this sin record before God, the one that sees his penetrating eyes, see into your very heart, know your every motive, know every thought in your mind. And you've got this sin record before God and the forgiveness of sins found in Christ Jesus. It takes our mind to this reality that that sin record can be wiped clean, that all the sins are on the record, but it can, they can be wiped off of the record because the sin was laid on Jesus and he died in your place. But not only the forgiveness of sins, but justification. Look at verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is free. Now hear me out. That word freed, Greek word, every other place in the New Testament is always justified. It's this idea of being justified. Justification. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be, again, justified by the law of Moses. So here's what this does. This takes us from thinking about our sin record, not just thinking about our sin record before God, but what does the judge himself think about us? What does the judge himself speak about us? That's what we think about when we think about justification. Because of Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth can look at each one of us here that are in Christ Jesus. He can look at us and he can say, not guilty, innocent, Righteous in my sight, the condemnation has been lifted. And that's a good summary of justification. Condemnation lifted. You know, in Romans 8, justification and condemnation are put forward as opposites. You're either justified or condemned. And think about this condemnation. It's not condemnation from other humans around you. This is a condemnation deserved towards you from God Himself. And justification is condemnation lifted from you. Not only the sins taken off the record, but the justifier has justified you. And then I said also salvation. You see that in verse 26? It says, 
To us has been sent the message of this salvation. The message of this salvation. Verse 23 calls Jesus a Savior. The message of this salvation and a Savior. So now, not only our sin record before God wiped clean, not only justification, condemnation has been lifted from us, but the judge of all the earth becomes our rescuer, our Savior, our deliverer. He brings us into a safe place. Forgiveness, justification, and salvation. That's what he preached to these people. Number seven. He preached a message that demands a response. It demands a response. Now, none, none of the things that we just said, okay? Forgiveness, justification, salvation. It does not belong to you if you have not responded to this gospel. It doesn't belong to you if you haven't responded. The Christian gospel is not just a, an information dump when we lay a bunch of facts out. The Christian gospel is a gospel. It's a message where people are called to respond. They're summoned in. They're invited in to respond to the message. It's part of his gospel here. And what do we see in verse 39? And by him, everyone who believes is justified. Faith in Christ. Everyone, here's the response, the proper response. Everyone who believes is justified. Faith in Christ. Trust in Jesus. Not yourself. Justified from the things which the law of Moses could never justify you, it says. You couldn't earn it yourself. You could try to be good. You could try to be better. You could try to turn your life around. But it would not justify. Your sin is too strong. But faith in Christ. Trust in Jesus. He's the one that died for me. He's the one risen from the dead. He's the Savior. He's the Deliverer. He's the Christ of Psalm 2. The Christ of Psalm 16. He's that Christ. And trust in Him brings about forgiveness of sins. Now let me show you this in verse 40 and 41. Paul calls them to respond by giving them a warning. Now have you ever, have you ever preached the Gospel and called someone to respond with this kind of warning. Listen. Listen to it. Beware. Therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Then he quotes it. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He calls them to respond with a warning. Watch out. Unless it's true about you, what's said in Habakkuk, that you hear these words and you don't believe it. Beware, he says. This is the message that Paul preached. This is the message that the missionaries preached. It's the message that we send our missionaries out with. It's the message that we ought to preach. It's the message. This is the message of the gospel. So, the doors open to Pisidian Antioch. The gospel has now been heralded. Now, how will these people respond? How are they going to respond? To the gospel. And I want you, and I want you to notice in Pisidian Antioch, notice the, the polarizing effect that the preaching of the gospel has in this city. Because that's the testimony, that's the testimony. If you keep reading through all the different situations where the missionaries land, it's, it's always the preaching of the gospel and it's this polarizing moment where some love it, some hate it. Some follow Christ, some oppose him. And we see the same thing here in Pisidian Antioch. So let's, let's read that together. I want you to notice that as we read. Look at verse 42. As they went out, they went out from the synagogue, as they went out, the people begged 
that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So initially, they come out of the synagogue and these people are begging for more. Can you tell us about these things again on the next Sabbath? They're just begging for more. And Jews and proselytes are getting saved. They're beginning to follow Christ. They're walking with Paul and Barnabas, begging for more. It's the initial response. Well, what about a week later? I say a week later because verse 44 says the next Sabbath. So the next Sabbath, a week later, what happens? Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Isn't that glorious? So I preached one Sabbath to all the Jews, this multitudes of Jews here. Next Sabbath, the whole city is gathered up. They're hungry. They want to hear what's to be said about this gospel. Verse 45, this is when you see the polarizing effect. This is, this is when the attack comes. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they're filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So they're filled with envy in their hearts. They begin to contradict what he's saying. That's, they're bringing false doctrine to his true doctrine. And they begin to revile him. They don't just attack the preaching. They attack the preacher himself. It's character assassination here. And so they begin to attack him. Verse 46 and verse 47. We're going to see Paul and Barnabas boldly strike back. Look at verse 46. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying... It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. They speak out with boldness. One version says they don't mince words. And they say, look, we started with you, but since you rejected, since you thrusted aside, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to the Gentiles because God commanded us so. And he quotes Isaiah 49, 6. <clears throat> now, verse 48, look at the response here. It's beautiful. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe, souls are being saved in this place. Look at verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Souls are being saved. The church is being established. And the gospel is going out into the whole region now. Beautiful. But, here's, but again, here's the polarizing effect. Look at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they persecuted them. They drove them out of the city. They wiped the dust off their feet against them as they leave as this sign of you have rejected God and therefore God has rejected you. And then they move on and they're headed to another city called Iconium. So you see the polarizing effect that the gospel had as it entered into Pisidian Antioch. Now here, here's what I want to do. That, that's our text of Scripture today. That's God's Word to us from the Scriptures today. 
And what we're seeing here is a glimpse into missionary life. In fact, we're seeing the, the first missionary journey coming out of the church of Antioch, okay? And, and they land first in Cyprus, and then they land in this Pisidian Antioch, and we're getting to see insight into what is the missionary life like? What is the missionary life like? So what I want to do is I want to make just a few statements from this passage of Scripture about the missionary life. Is the missionary life smooth sailing or rough waters? So number one, is it smooth sailing or is it rough waters? And I hope you see from Acts 13 that oftentimes missionary life is rough waters. We got problems from without. Persecutions coming their way. Rejections coming their way. They end their time here wiping the dust off their feet against these people. This is, this is, this is opposition coming from without. And they got problems from within. This is rough waters. You imagine the discouragement of these three men going out to the mission and then one of them abandons. One of them abandons, abandons the mission. You imagine the discouragement that comes on them in those moments as John Mark leaves and goes back to Jerusalem. So is the missionary life smooth sailing or is it rough waters? And I hope you see from Acts 13, it's oftentimes rough waters. Satan will attack. Trials will come. It's absolutely a guarantee. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this for your soberness. For your soberness. That as we think about the missionary life, that we wouldn't have false ideas. This romanticized view of the missionary life. We don't need that. We need soberness to think rightly about the missionary life and the trials that come through it and the satanic attacks that come through it. We need to think soberly about the missionary life. And that will help all of you that are going to the nations. And it will help all of us that are holding the rope for them as they go to care for them and love them as they go. And to think about the missionary life with soberness. The missionary life is a life of sacrifice. Of sacrifice. Which brings me to my second point here. Is the, mission, is the missionary life sorrowful sacrifice or is it joy-filled sacrifice? Sorrowful sacrifice or joy-filled sacrifice? In other words, we've already established it's a sacrificial life. But does sacrificial life mean sor a sorrowful life? Now, I realize that we're going to have sorrows and joys. The scripture describes it as, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. But what I mean is, is, does a sacrificial life mean a sorrowful life? Like, I sacrifice all my joys, all the good things in life, all my joys, that I might serve Jesus. Sounds real pious, doesn't it? Get rid of all my joys so I can serve Jesus. A sorrowful, live a sorrowful life for Him. Is that the idea? Is that what we mean when we say a sacrificial life? And what I want you to notice is in the midst of hardship, in Acts 13, notice the emphasis on joy. Notice the emphasis on joy. Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began what? Rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. They heard the gospel. They began rejoicing and glorifying the gospel. Look down to verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So certainly that means the disciples in Pisidian Antioch are filled with joy. But also Paul and Barnabas, the missionaries themselves, the preachers of the gospel, are filled with joy in the work that they do. And this is a fulfillment of Psalm 67, right? Psalm 67, there's this prayer. God, bless us. Let your face shine upon us. 
that your way might be known in all the earth, as a, uh, that your way might be known in all the earth, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples, the nations, let them praise you. Listen to this. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. We go out as missionaries for the joy of the peoples. For the joy of all peoples. But not just those who receive the gospel, but those that preach the gospel. The disciples are filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. They're filled with joy in the Holy Spirit. Think about uh, Psalm 4, 7. Psalm 4, 7 says this, that God, it says he, he gives you more joy, not joy, more joy than those who are in this season of abounding with grain and new wine. In other words, he's going to give you a joy that goes past circumstance. He's able to give you a joy, a more joy that goes past the joy that those people have that's dependent on a good circumstance. Then in the midst of hardship, it says the disciples are filled with joy. So we're not talking about sorrowful sacrifice. We're talking about joy-filled sacrifice. Now, why am I telling you this? Why am I telling you this? And my reason for telling you this is that some of you that are thinking about making uh, uh, new devotions, you're, you're, you're taking your new, uh, you're going to devote yourself in a new way to the missionary, uh, the whole missionary cause. You want to devote yourself, whether it means going, whether it means what you understand and giving and, and praying for missionaries, but you want to give yourself in a new way. And you're right there on the brink of that. And what I want to do is push you over the edge. This is a joy-filled life. I want you to be so, so uh, wrapped up in, in, the, in, in how the missionary life draws you in to a life of joy that you just want to go there. That's what's being described to us here. It's not this idea of, it's not this idea I'm going to leave my joy so I can serve Jesus. It's I'm going to leave lesser joys to find the greater joys in Christ. The greater joys to be found in service to Christ. There's joy in this life. Think about the man that found the treasure in the field. Remember that? He found treasure in the field. And he said he went and sold all that he had to get the treasure. Is that what it says? It actually says he found the treasure in the field. And he went and it says, with joy, he sold all that he had. That he might get that treasure. With joy. Joyful sacrifice. Not sorrowful sacrifice. <clears throat> There was a guy, um, you ever heard of Samuel Zweimer? You ever heard of him? I was hoping no, because I don't know if I'm saying his last name right. <laughs> Samuel Zweimer, possibly. He was a Muslim, uh, excuse me, he was a, a missionary to the Muslims in Bahrain. He went in 1897. And man, he faced hardships. He faced hardships. He lost two daughters, age four and seven. It's the age of my kids, can you imagine that? He lost two daughters, and by the world's standards, he honestly saw little fruit in what he did. And 50 years later, after being a missionary there, he's an old man, he's looking back on his life, and they're asking about it, and he says this, let this sink into your heart. He says, the sheer joy of it all comes back. Gladly would I do it all over again. Missionary life, although it is sacrifice, don't hear us wrongly, it's a life of joy. <clears throat> Thirdly, is the missionary life about the strategies of men or the powerful word of the Lord? Now, notice this church planning effort recorded for us in Acts 13. It does not highlight the, the 
uh, schemes of men, the strategies of men, the skillfulness of men. It doesn't highlight any of that. In fact, the main preacher, Paul, he says in another place, I, I believe it's 2 Corinthians eleven six. he says that he is unskillful in speaking. Now, that's unfortunate for a preacher, right? He's unskillful in, in speaking, he says. So this is not to highlight the skillfulness of men, the, the strategies of men, but rather to highlight the power of the word of the Lord. Listen, don't look, just listen. Listen to this. Acts 12, 4. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Acts 13, verse 5. They proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues. Verse 7. He sought, they summoned Paul and Barnabas and sought to hear the word of God. Verse 1344. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Verse 48. The Gentiles heard this. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Verse 49. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Do you see the emphasis here? Not the schemes of men, not the power of men, but the power of the word of the Lord. And why am I telling you this? For your confidence. I'm telling you this for your confidence. You say, I don't know that I could penetrate an unreached people group. I don't know that I could penetrate an unreached people group for God. I can't do that. Or, or I don't know if I could speak the gospel to a lost person. Listen to me. You have the word of the Lord. Also known as the spirit sword in Ephesians 6. Also known as the hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. You've got the word. Don't trust in yourself. Have confidence in God by having confidence in his word. In the mission of God. Fourthly. Does the missionary life depend on the persuasiveness of men or the sovereign election of God? Does the missionary life depend on the persuasiveness of men or the sovereign election of God for souls to be saved? Now, if the mission depended on the persuasiveness of men, all people from all people groups would burn in hell forever. If it depended on the persuasiveness of men. But God is sovereignly at the bottom of every single soul that wakes up to the gospel. Look at verse 48. It's beautiful. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Listen. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Did you hear that? As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now here's what it doesn't say. As many as believed were appointed to eternal life. As if we believe and then we got appointed to eternal life. It says as many as were appointed to eternal life. That the election of God, the choosing of God, created the faith that these people walked in for salvation. All those appointed to eternal life believed. Now, why did they believe? It, why, why do you, so many of you here believe in Christ? Why is that? Is that because you're better than other people? Is that because you're just better? You, just, you have more of a willing heart to listen. More of a willing heart to hear. More of a willing mind to understand. Is that the reason you believe? Or is it because of God's decree before time began? Ephesians 1.4 says He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. 
He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. And all those appointed to eternal life believe God elects, God raises the dead, God wakes up those who are asleep. God opens the heart like we see in Acts 16, 14, where it says the Lord opened her heart that she might receive the things spoken by Paul. God opens the heart. God elects. And, 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 and why am I telling you this? For your hope. I'm telling you this. I'm telling you this for your hope. Here's what I mean, especially as we go after unreached people groups. When, when you look in the face of an unreached people group, or for any of any lost person for that matter, you're looking in the face of a lost man or woman or an unreached people group, you're looking right there, and you see every obstacle standing in the way from them being converted. Their family will hate them. The nation will turn against them. Maybe they'll go to jail. They hate your Christ. They hate your message. Every obstacle stands in the way of them coming to Christ and being converted. And as you look in that face, what is your hope? What's your hope that they'll be saved? What's your hope that some will be saved and the church will be established? What's your hope? And I'll tell you what it is. That God has chosen a people from Himself, for Himself, from before time again, from all the nations. And all those who are appointed to eternal life will believe. Praise to the living God for the sovereign election of God. Lastly, the missionary life. Is it ultimately because of men? Or is it ultimately because of Christ? And what I mean is, do missionaries ultimately have the good of man in view? Or do missionaries ultimately have the glory of Christ in view? Which one? Now notice I said ultimately. Because I realize that we and all missionaries and all Christians have in view the good of man. We want to see their souls saved. We, we want to see joy unspeakable come to people that find Christ. I realize that. But I'm talking about ultimate motivation. What is the ultimate motivation of the missionary? And it's the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The exalting of Jesus Christ. So let's say we could ask Paul and Barnabas. Say, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, what motivates you to be missionaries. What motivates you to go to unreached people group, Paul, Paul and Barnabas? And I believe they would answer us something like what we see in verse 46. Look at verse 46. The very end of verse 46 says, we are turning to the Gentiles. That's the nation. We're turning to the nation. Why? For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So they say, look, Paul Martinus, why are you missionaries? We're motivated. We were reading Isaiah and we saw, we got to about Isaiah 49 down in verse 6 right there. And we read that and we're motivated by that thought right there in Isaiah 49 verse 6. And that's why they quoted here. We're going to the nations for so God has commanded us and they quote Isaiah 49.6. So let's go to Isaiah 49.6 and let's close there. What is this motivation that they found? Isaiah 49. Now he quotes the very end of verse 46. I'm going to start back. Excuse me. He, he quotes the very end of verse 6 in Isaiah 49. I'm going to start in Isaiah 49 verse 5. Let me give a little bit of an attempt to give you some context. Verse 5 says, and now the Lord says, 
He who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Okay, a little context. In this part of, of Isaiah, the servant is Christ. The servant is Jesus. The servant is Christ. And we're talking about, in this part of Isaiah, the glorification of the servant Jesus. The exaltation. One place, and I believe in Isaiah 48, he says, I will not give my glory to another. My glory will only land on Christ. It will only land on the servant. I will not give my glory to another. And then we read this in verse, keep going to verse 5. Start back in verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that's to bring Israel back, and that Israel might be gathered to him. I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says this, it is too light a thing. Let that sink in. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. He says, listen, for you to be a savior to the Jewish people, that's too light a thing. It's not enough. Look what it says next. I will make you as a light. You, Jesus, a servant, I'll make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is about the glory of Jesus Christ among all nations. It's too light a thing for Jesus to be exalted in Israel. It's too light a thing for Jesus to be exalted in Grace Community Church. But He will be a Savior. He will be exalted among all the nations. This is about His glory. And Paul and Barnabas say, that's why we do what we do. That's why we do what we do. The missionary life is ultimately about the glory of Christ. And in Pisidian Antioch, in Acts 13, Pisidian Antioch, that's what we see. We see Christ Jesus exalted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words and for your power, for your sovereign election, for you calling us in to although it's sacrifice and to joy. Lord, thank you for all of these beautiful things, Lord. Thank you, God, that your word was preached in this, in this, amongst this people group. And you saved souls there. You opened doors for your gospel. And God, I just pray that you would give us that in our church. That you would take us to unreached people groups. That you would open doors for your gospel. And not even just unreached people groups, God, but here where we live, that you would open doors for the gospel. And Lord Jesus, ultimately, that you would be exalted to the highest place. That you would be lifted up and praise God. That you would fill us with the right message and the right boldness and the right motivation, God. You'd fill us as your church with those things. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love you, Lord. And we want to read your word and respond to it. God, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, God, Pray you'd help them, please. God, I know sometimes we all have a tendency to be bored with your word, and we hate that, Lord. We hate that. And we long for the day when sin is gone and it's done away with, and we see you face to face. And so, God, we know we admit that we all struggle with that. And yet, at the same time, God, if there's anyone here that just Day after day and week after week, they're just bored with your word as a testimony that they don't truly know you. God, I pray that you wake them up. Open their eyes to see. Do what you did with Lydia where you open their heart to receive that gospel that was just preached. 
and save their souls, Lord. Save their souls. And God, build up your church in Jesus' name. Amen. And we've got light.